Let's pray before we look at God's word this morning. Oh, Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we how glorious it is to, to sing of you and the great work that you have done or, and are continuing to do in the life of your church. Uh, we come this morning, oh God, as your, your people to hear words of hope as we have just sung that the church in many ways is, is sore pressed by schisms rent asunder and by heresies distress. And Lord, the things that we are looking at today can be difficult. Uh, it confronts, Lord, many times our, our pride and our desire to be self-sufficient. But I pray, oh God, that you would speak to us words of hope, that you would apply the things that we read to our hearts, that we might be set free in Jesus Christ. God, that we would see your power at work mightily within our lives to your glory and to your praise. Lord, may our church, may the churches here in Andover and in the surrounding communities be lighthouses to proclaim who Jesus Christ is. We thank you, O God, and pray these things in your name. Amen. So how are we as Christians in the 21st century in a world that's increasingly hostile to Christ to live in such a way that people come to know Jesus Christ? How do we navigate the culture in which we live so that we might share Christ with those who do not know him? Well, as one author wrote, he said, the first Christians gained converts not because their arguments were better than those of the pagans, but because people saw in them and in their communities something good and beautiful, and they wanted it. This led them to the truth. Now, having said that, there were apologists in the early church that defended the gospel and proclaimed the gospel, and there is a sense in which we do need to be prepared to give an argument for the things that we believe but as Paul is showing as we come to the end of Ephesians, that the gospel is not just something to be believed, but it is a lifestyle. It is a life that is produced by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why you hear so many people say today, you know, you talk to them and say, are you a Christian? And they'll say yes. And, and immediately I want to look to their life to see if I see the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Not that they have to be perfect. But just that the Spirit of God is working in their hearts. And as we come to the middle of chapter 5, we see that Paul is fleshing out this teaching of the gospel in practical ways, in the basic relationships of life. And Paul wants us to see that, you know, as we become imitators of God, as he talked about at the beginning of chapter 5, loving others, walking in the light, not in darkness, and walking in wisdom, and being filled with the Spirit, that it's, it's going to show itself. It's, it's going to be evident in our marriages and in our families and even in our work as we'll see in chapters 5 and 6 of Ephesians. And last week we looked at the picture of marriage in chapter 5 verses 22 through 33 and we saw God's pattern and his power and his purpose for marriage and we saw that God's design for marriage is to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church. And so, as we grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we see that applied in our lives, and particularly in our marriages, what people will see more and more is Jesus. They'll see Jesus. And so, as we live godly, not perfect marriages, 
where wives submit to their husbands and husbands love and sacrificially lead their wives, as one person said, the whole of society will be able to see displayed the grace of God in Jesus Christ lived out in our marriage relationships and the love of the church for Jesus Christ will be seen in a Christian marriage. And so today we're going to return to this uh, picture of marriage to look more carefully at what it means to submit and to sacrifice what those things look like. Today I'm going to, to cover verses 22 through 24 as we look at the call of a, a Christian wife to submit to her husband. And then next week, uh, Ben is, will be uh, preaching the rest of the passage in verses 25 through 33 and looking at the role of the husband. Now, let me just say this. You know, there may be some that are here today who, who are, are single, they're not married, and you may think, oh, great, uh, this doesn't even apply to me. Well, let me just tell you, it does. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are a part of his church, then you are part of the bride of Christ. And the, the attitude that the women are to have towards their husband is the very attitude that, that the church is to have towards her bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. And so let us listen carefully at what God tells us in his word. And we see... As we look at this passage, Paul highlights three features of a wife's relationship with her husband. First of all, what she is to do. Second of all, why she is to do it. And then thirdly, how she is to go about it. So first of all, what she is to do. Second of all, why she is to do it. And then how she is to go about it. And first of all, what is she to do? Well, very simply this. To be submissive to her own husband. And we talked last week a little bit about what that meant, that submission is voluntarily placing yourself under the authority of another. That the word that Paul uses here is actually a military term of being under rank of someone of a higher rank. And if you think about the military, there is a sense in which you have to be, a private has to be in submission to a colonel or a general you know, or there will just be chaos. If everybody does exactly what they want to do when it comes to wartime, everybody will just run their own way. And so there's a sense in which there has to be a voluntary giving up of, of uh, placing yourself under that authority. And we see it not only in the military. We see it in sports arenas, you know, with coaches and players. Players must submit to what coaches say. Or even in business as we think about committees and, and projects, you know, as you get together as a group of people to work on a project, you got to have a chairman that sort of guides you through that, that process. And so this whole idea of submission is, is seen throughout our society. But for the Christian, submission for a Christian is a voluntary yielding in love. It, it is not an acknowledgement that the person I submit to is superior to me and I'm, I'm inferior to them. If you go back to the military illustration, it doesn't mean that the private is less intelligent than the general or that is, he is inferior in some ways. He's just placed himself under that officer. So when a wife submits to her husband, she is recognizing and embracing the fact that he is God's appointed head and leader of their relationship in their home. She's not to submit to her husband because he's more spiritual because than she is or, or more uh, wise or more intelligent. You know, he may or may not be these things, 
but she submits because she is placing herself under the authority that God has stated. Now, I think it is worth noting that Paul does say that she is submit to her own husbands. It doesn't mean that all women submit to all men. That's not the idea here, but it is within the marriage relationship. So that's what Paul is calling wives to do is to submit. Now, why is he calling them to do that? Well, the first reason is very simple, because God commands it. A submission is not a suggestion to consider, but it's a command to be obeyed. Likewise, when God commands the husbands to lovingly sacrifice for their wives, it is a command. It's not just an option. So a wife's godly submission to her husband belongs to her obedience to God, as we'll talk about here in a little bit later. So the idea of a wife submitting, though, as we think about our culture, is at best laughable and I think for many people, it's very offensive to hear this kind of teaching. And, and I just want to lay that on the table because this is where you live. The, the people that you live with in your neighborhoods, uh, where you work, uh, the schools you go to, these things. As you talk about these things, people will look at you as if you have three heads. But this ought not to surprise us because, you know, if we go back to Genesis and we, we see that there, as, uh, as God said, that there would be enmity or there would be strife between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So no wonder there's this great chasm between what the world thinks and, and acts and the way that the church thinks and acts. And, and this is probably seen no more uh, prominent in our culture today than in the area of marriage and the family. It seems like that's the area that, that's unattacked. So we ought not to be surprised. But there's another reason for this submission as well. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, turn back, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. Um, and while you're turning back to Genesis 2, I, I just want to make one comment. Um, last week I mentioned that just about, not every church, but just about every church I've been at, there has been at least one husband who has taken this out of context and has really responded to his wife sort of with this kind of attitude. Woman, come turn on the TV for me and bring my beer. You know, it's this sense in which a woman has been placed in the life of the man to be the servant. And that's how he's interpreted the whole thing of headship, as if he has ultimate authority. And, you know, sometimes you just got to pull rank and let a woman know what her place is. But but, you know, even before we look at Genesis, let me just mention it says that uh, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Well, how does he describe his headship? Well, we don't have time to, to look at it completely, but even the Lord Jesus Christ lived under the headship of the Father. Do we not see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3? So Christ was someone who was in authority over the church and loved the church and cared for her, but he was also someone who was under the authority of, of someone else. And did Jesus not uh, tell his disciples in Luke chapter 22, verse 27, I am among you as one who serves. That's his headship. And so any man that comes in with that kind of attitude really doesn't understand biblical submission and authority and headship. So anyway, let's turn back to, to Genesis 2. Because as we go back to Genesis 2, 
we see really where this whole thing of the man and the woman come together. And, and I just want to explain this because we're going to look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is sort of like an overview of creation. You see that there was nothing, that God created everything by the power of his word, and uh, he created the world, the, the creatures, the plants, uh, humanity. He gave them a task to do, and at the end it says what? And it was very good. And then in Genesis 2, it's like you just take, you know, you're watching a movie and they just zoom in on a scene. And you begin to see the details from chapter 1. You begin to see uh, where the man came from. You know, that God created Adam. He placed him in the garden. And, and what does it say in, in verse 15? But that he gave him the task to, to care for the garden and, and to... Uh, um, to be in the garden and to care for it. And then we see later on that, that he creates Eve. But Eve was created to be Adam's helper. She, she was God's uh, complement, in essence, to Adam. Because what, is, what does the text say in verse 18? But God saw that Adam was alone and it was what? It was not good. And so he, he remedied that situation in a sense is that he created Eve to complement and to complete Adam. And so she enabled Adam to fulfill his God-given calling on God's earth. And so Adam's headship is not one of superiority and hers one of inferiority, but it is one that God has called them each to a certain task. And I think it's interesting that if you look at Genesis 2.15, uh, what God gave Adam to do in Genesis 2.15, we see that God planned for Adam and Eve to do together uh, as you look back at Genesis 1.24 through 28. Um, let me just read that, if I could, just a second. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. And, and, and what I want us to see here is, is that that which God commanded Adam to do, actually God had planned for Adam and Eve together to do. God, Adam could not m multiply and fill the earth without Eve. And even uh, as the vice regent, as he who oversaw God's creation and cared for the garden, he did so with Eve. And so God's plan was for the two to, to work together. I like Matthew Henry's uh, exposition of the relationship between Adam and Eve. This is what he says in his commentary. He said, The woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, 
not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Men, that's the attitude that we ought to have towards our wives. Sorry, Ben, don't mean to steal your thunder for next week. But the, the reality is, is that God has created both men and women for a very specific purpose. Now, how, how is a woman to uh, fulfill this calling that God has placed uh, on her in regards to their husband? Well, I want you to look at some of the phrases that Paul uses here. Look at verse 22. He says that she is to submit as to the Lord. Verse 24, she is to submit as the church submit is, is subject to Christ. And verse 24, that she is to submit in, in everything. Now, how is the church to submit to Christ? Or maybe another way to ask this is, is how does the Lord expect his church to submit to him? Well, first, let me suggest to you, it is out of love to him who first loved us. You think about the, the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said, is that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind, in Matthew twenty two thirty seven. But But how can we do that? Well, John tells us in 1 John 4, verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. That, that God showed his love to us, and therefore we can love others, but we can also love God as well. It reminds me of the story of a, a woman who was married to a husband who was actually rather tyrannical. He, he demanded that she do things. He made to-do lists to make sure that she got those things done. And uh, when, she, when he got home, he wanted to see that she had completed the things that he had said. And she recalls how challenging that marriage was. Well, eventually that man died and she married another man. And this marriage was like the opposite. Uh, she describes it as we were on a continual honeymoon. She said, I loved my husband. She said, it was great. And she said, one day I was cleaning out some things and I found a list from my first husband. And as I looked down the list, I realized that even though my second husband had never asked me to do any of these things, I was doing all of these things for him continually because I loved him. That's the attitude that Christ calls us to love. An unloving submission is deeply offensive to God. It is the posture of a body, not a love of the heart. So Christians, you know, as we come to the Lord, it's one of those things where we, we submit to him, especially wives in regards to their husbands. So even if their husbands are not the most loving men, even though they might be difficult, she can love him because her love for Christ is what directs and fills her life. So wives are to submit to their husbands in love, not out of a sense of mere duty, but also wives should submit with confidence. You know, the church knows that its Savior is worthy of unhesitating submission. You know, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, right? We've sung about that this morning. Uh, out of the love for his church, we read in Scripture that Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. And he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And, you know, it's, it's one thing I know to submit to 
Jesus, who is perfect, and another thing to submit to an imperfect husband. But the wife is to keep her eyes upon the Lord. Uh, in verse 22, it says that she is to submit as to the Lord. Everything that she does is to be done in obedience to the Lord. Should be done, first of all, for God's glory and to please Him. Wives, the husbands to whom you submit, I know, do not often inspire respect. Um, sometimes they are, they'll be thoughtless. They'll be inconsiderate. They'll be ungrateful. <coughs> Excuse me. And I could go on and on, but I don't want to keep confessing my sins. You know, we, we as men, we wrestle with these things. And I know, wives, that your husbands are not always like the men that are so easy to respect. But as she submits anyway, because it is the Lord's will for her to do so, but also a wife who properly submits to her husband does so because she first properly submits to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, maybe I could put it this way. The woman who does not reverence her husband, does not respect her husband, almost certainly doesn't reverence Jesus Christ. That's where biblical submission starts. As a woman is, is filled with the Spirit, as she meditates upon the Word of God, as she sees the sin of her own heart, as she brings that to the Lord, as she draws strength from Him in His Word and the promises that He gives, maybe even in a very difficult marriage and situation, uh, but as she draws that strength from the Lord, then she can love her husband as Christ commands her to do so. Now, what is to be the scope of this submission? How, how far should she submit? That's oftentimes the question that's asked. Well, in verse 24, Paul says that a wife is to submit in everything. Now, we know he doesn't really mean everything, right? Because immediately as we hear that, what do we say? Well, we say, well, of course we know that if the husband seeks to lead his wife in an ungodly lifestyle... She's not supposed to follow her husband. If the husband wants his wife to do something contrary to Scripture, of course the wife must obey God first rather than, than her husband. And, and we see that in Acts chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, when the religious leaders are, are telling the apostles not to talk about Christ. And Peter says in Acts 5, 29, he said, we must obey God rather than men. And so we all understand that and we just sort of fill that in. So, you know, because we know that when push comes to shove, we must obey God rather than men. So why is Paul so universally, you know, in talking about the submission to wives, saying wives submit to everything? Well, for this simple reason, and listen carefully to this, that if you're not submissive to your husband in everything, you are not likely to be submissive to him in anything. Let me say that again. If you're not submissive to your husband in everything, you are not likely to be submissive to him in, in anything. Now, let me clarify this, because I know some of you are going, now wait, Pastor Rick, now you've stepped over the line. You know, what the scripture says about we, women, you should not follow your husbands into sin, those things are true. But sometimes I think as, as wives, the temptation can be to want to look at the exceptions rather than seeking to say, I'm going to have wholehearted submission to my husband. 
It's a, it's a little bit like uh, the story of a son. I don't know if you know Steve Brown. Steve Brown was a Christian radio personality. He was a seminary professor at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando for a while. And, and he may still be, I don't know. But Steve Brown said one day he was walking down the hall and there was a student who stopped him and says, Hey, Professor Brown, can I tell you a story? And he said, Sure. And he said, Well, there was a, 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 a man who was on his deathbed. He was dying. And he was concerned for his wife. And so he called his son to him and he said, son, you know, I'm, I'm concerned that once I'm gone, there's, there's a loose screen door on the front door and I'm afraid that that's going to cause your mother problems. Would you do me a favor and fix that? And the son said, sure, dad, I'll do that. And he goes out and he fixes it. The next day, the son comes to visit his father and his father said, you know, son, I've been thinking also on the front porch, there's a loose board and I'm, I'm really concerned that after I'm gone, your mom's going to fall down the steps because of that loose board. Would you fix that? And he said, sure, I'll fix that. The next day, the father is just about ready to go home to be with the Lord and be in glory. And he says, son, one last thing. He said, I'm really concerned that your mother be provided for. So will you sell my business and take that money and invest that so your mother will have something to live on for the rest of her life? And the son walked away. And he thought to himself, no way am I selling this business. This thing is very profitable. All, you know, everything is going up. I'm not going to sell it now. I'll wait till later. And the, the seminary student looked at Steve Brown and he said, so Professor Brown, how many times did that son obey his father? And Professor Brown said, well, two out of three. And that ain't bad. And the seminarian looked at his professor and he says, no, he said, actually, he never did. He never obeyed his father. It just so happened that two out of three times, the father's will coincided with what the son wanted. Is that sometimes maybe our attitude towards Christ? Maybe wives, sometimes that's your attitude towards your husbands. That, you know, it's just really, it's so easy to submit to him when... You agree with him, but really your heart is not as submissive as what you desire. And so your temptation is to say, yeah, I, would, I, I will submit to my husband, but my husband is so, and then you can fill in the blank, insensitive, harsh, unloving, whatever. Or you can say, but if you only knew my husband, he's a, he's a difficult man. But, but Paul understood this struggle. Paul understood where, where women are and, and where they are as a result of the curse. Look back, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, after Eve took of the fruit and God is passing out the curses upon Adam and Eve and Satan, in Genesis 3.16, God says to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And so that's one part of the curse. The second part of the curse, he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but, you, but he shall rule over you. Now, some of your translations may say your desire is for your husband. And I think that's probably the most appropriate translation. Um, but I think what the ESV is trying to do is to interpret what's that, what that means. And what I mean by that is, is as you go look on a little bit farther, look over to chapter 4, verse 7. You'll see that the same language is being used in verse 7 where Cain and Abel come and they give their offering to the Lord. God rejects Cain's offering because it's not uh, appropriate. 
And then God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. It desires, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In other words, sin's desire was to conquer Cain. And unfortunately it did and he killed his brother. But, but that same idea can be seen with the wife, that your desire will be to rule over your husband, but he shall rule over you. That, that as wives, their desire can be to rule over their husbands. Now, wives have been created to be the helpmate for her, their husbands and to help them fulfill the calling that God has given to them. But imagine as, as sin entered the world that now, as the wife is seeking to help her husband, she might be tempted to control her husband. Or maybe we might say, seek to fix him and in that way to help him. And so what's really uh, sought to be done is not to be submissive and place yourself under the authority of that husband, but it is to try to rule over him and somehow make him an improved model of what he is today. And that's why Paul says to wives, wives, voluntarily place yourself under the authority of your husband. Christ has set you free. You are no longer bound to have to... To, to, to seek to rule over him, you can submit to him and, and enjoy that. And like I said, brothers and sisters, I just encourage each of us, no matter where we are in our stage of life, to also look at our own hearts and to say, is that my heart towards the Lord as a Christian? Now, I do want to make one uh, just quick comment, and that is regarding abuse. And, and I know that there's a whole lot that can be said, but there are situations where there is real abuse in marriages. And, and I just want to say that if, as a wife, you find yourself in a situation like that where a husband is being abusive, it is appropriate for you to come to the church and to talk to the elders or to come talk to me. Um, that is not something that you need to seek to bear upon your own and if you have more that you more questions about that you can talk to me after the service but let me just say this uh, as as we look at this whole idea of submission and sort of come to the end it, it should be said that a wife's submission to her husband will reflect at least in part her God-given personality and temperament and I say that because I think that sometimes there's a picture of a woman that she is a, a mousy woman. She is a woman that her husband is very domineering and she's sort of quiet and doesn't ever want to cross him, doesn't ever want to say anything much to him. And we sort of think of that as what submission is. But the reality is, is that, you know, God has made women very different. There are women who are very, have a very quiet disposition. But there are also women who are very outgoing. And wifely submission will not always look as black and white in its application. You know, there may be times when a wife might lovingly, carefully challenge her husband because maybe he needs wisdom. And, and uh, that's why God has placed her there to help them. And the reason I know that is because I have such a wife that oftentimes helps me in those times when I need to hear that. But what do we think of when we think of a, a, a woman, a godly woman who is submissive? Well, our minds might go to Sarah, Abraham's wife, or, or maybe to Ruth, you know, who was very submissive to Boaz. Even she had such a submissive spirit. She was submissive to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And, and first of all, she was submissive to the Lord. She was a foreigner. 
and yet she believed in the Lord. So you just sort of see that model of submission. Or what about Mary, the mother of Jesus? You know, here's a single girl. I mean, she is engaged, uh, betrothed to be married, but she's finding herself pregnant out of wedlock, and she's like, Lord, whatever your will is. There is that attitude of submission. So we might think of those women, but I, I want to just close with contrasting two other women. Look at 1 Samuel 25, if you would. And, and this may be someone that you may be familiar with, you, you may not, and that is Abigail. Abigail is a woman who disobeyed her husband. She insulted him, called him a fool, and she declared another man as her lord. Uh, doesn't sound very submissive to you. To us, does it? But if you if you look at her life, you see that actually she was a very submissive woman. Nabal was a man who had like three thousand sheep and a thousand goats, and he was pastoring near Carmel. And David and his men—this was back before David had become king—but he had been declared that he would be king, and he was running from King Saul. And uh, David was there in that area. And rather than taking advantage of Nabal and taking some of his livestock for himself, David actually protected Nabal and his livestock. And so when the time came for um, the shearing of the sheep, David sent some men to ask Nabal, since David had protected his flock, he said, hey, could we have some food? And uh, uh, Nabal sort of shockingly refused to not only give David he refused to give David's men food, but he even insulted David. And it's like, I'm never going to give you food. Don't, you know, don't think I'm going to do that. Well, David, when he heard this, he was furious. And he, was, he ordered his men to strap on their swords. And he's like, we're riding into Dodge. And we're going to wipe out all the males in Nabal's family, including himself. Well, Abigail heard from a servant what was happening. And she took some food and she went out to David. And she said, here, my Lord, she humbled herself before David and she said, please have mercy. My husband is a fool. Now, she wasn't insulting her husband when she said that. He really was a fool. Okay, she was just saying, basically, a leopard can't change his spots. I mean, the man is a foolish man. Please, though, have mercy upon him. And so she pleaded on behalf of her husband. She disobeyed him so that she might save his life. And she went and she called David Lord just to humble herself before David that he might have mercy. Well, David not only had mercy, but he also thanked Abigail for preventing him from attacking Nabal's home. And uh, as, a, as a result of that, then uh, Abigail went back and she told her husband, even though she knew it would make him angry, what exactly it was that she did. Well, the Lord ended up striking her husband dead and killed her. And she actually eventually became David's wife or one of his wives, I, I could say. So you have that sense, that picture of submission of, of a woman who loved her husband, loved the Lord. And she is actually commended in Scripture. But also in Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 16, you have another wife of David's, Michael, who is quite the opposite. She sees the Ark of the Covenant being brought into the city and David ministers before the Ark and he dances. He leaps before the Ark and she sees that and she has such disgust for him because she's like, that is no way for a king to act. You are acting so foolishly. And David's response was basically, you know, I would abase myself even more 
uh, if it were for the sake of the Lord. And, and what you see is a, a contrast between these two women where, where Abigail becomes David's wife, bears children, and is blessed from the Lord and loved very much by David. And Michael, the scriptures tell us, is the daughter of Saul who had no children to the day that she died. And you just sort of see that contrast. And the temptation for wives can be to be a Michael. To be a woman who's nagging, a woman who's controlling, a woman who's seeking to lead her own husband. She's her own woman. Or it could be a woman who loves her husband so much that he's even, she's even willing to do that which she knows may not bring favor upon her that she might love and to care for her husband. Oh, praise God. And may, may we in our households live in such a way that people would see Jesus and they would see that love of Christ and the love that the church is to have for him. Let's, let's bow our heads and have a moment of silence as we uh, think about the word that was preached this morning. Lord, we thank you so much as we, as we come to know our own hearts and to see the, the sinfulness of our desires. That oftentimes we become greatly offended, Lord, uh, when others don't do the things that we want. That what we desire really more than anything is, is that we would speak and people would do what we want. But we thank you, Jesus, that you have set us free that not only do we not have to have that, but God, you have so changed our hearts that we could be imitators of God, that we could love others as you have loved us. And I pray for our marriages in our church that they would reflect Christ. Lord, I pray for our women that they could lovingly su submit to their husbands. And Lord, I pray for the husbands that we could sacrificially love our wives. And I pray that we see Jesus. I also pray, Lord, for all of us, no matter what our marital status, that God, that we would have hearts of submission to you. Lord, that we would be a church, a bride, that is a delight to you. So work in our hearts, O oh God, to cause us to, to lay down our lives, to, to, to take up our cross and, and deny ourselves and to follow you. We thank you and pray this in your name. 